So sometimes the more you know about something, the greater you can appreciate it, like how technology works, right? <clears throat> for me, for me, this past year, um, we got a lot more knowledge about heart transplants. My daughter had to go through that, right? And so I, I knew what a heart transplant was. I kind of knew how it would work out and the, the, the mechanisms, mechanics of it. I kind of knew the outcome, right? But for me, true appreciation came in the details, when I learned the details, right? And so every family, if they have a child who needs a heart transplant, kind of discovers it in different ways. Uh, for some of our friends that we met in the hospital, for them, they had woken up uh, in the morning and went to their, their daughter's room and saw that she had blue hands and had a hard time breathing. And so they, they you know, care flight immediately to children's. For us, it's a little bit different. For us, we found it on a sonogram way before Santa was even born. So <clears throat> she's born. We need kind of immediate life-saving intervention. And uh, we have about a week where we're just trying to keep her alive and stabilize her and let her get over kind of some sickness. But we have to run a procedure, a heart catheterization to truly understand and truly see uh, what's going to happen and how bad is the heart and what we need to do, right? And so we finally get past that week. She gets in a stable enough place. We'll run that heart cath and they come back to us and they say her heart's broken beyond repair. It cannot be fixed. She needs a new heart. She needs a transplant. So this is when I start learning a lot of details about transplant that I never knew before. First detail I learned was this. <clears throat> when you, to have a pediatric heart transplant, there's only two places in all of Texas that can do that. One is down in Houston. The other is right here in our backyard in uh, Children's Dallas, Children's Health. And so the next kind of detail is, well, how do we get her from the hospital where she's born to that place. And so she got to uh, have a transplant, uh, transport team of about four people. They told us that 10-mile ride was like $250,000, so uh, we're spoiling her. We, you know, her first ride was uh, <clears throat> very expensive. But to take all the meds that she was on and to make those portable and the oxygen she's on and put her in an incubator and get her in an ambulance and get her to a hospital, uh, they said, like, man, 15 years ago, that wasn't possible. If you weren't born in the facility that did transplants, you were just out of luck. So finally, we get to the place where we're at. Now we're trying to get on this list, this transplant list. It's a, a national list ran by a third party. And so what you have to do, two things for that. Number one, you have to get doctor's approval. And doctors say, we're recommending this. We want this to happen. <clears throat> the other thing you have to do is you have to get insurance to approve it. And so for a whole week, we're kind of just battling back and forth and making sure the insurance is doing their job and passing along. And doctors are saying X, Y, Z. And finally, we get placed on the national list. And uh, there's four different types of ranking, 1A, 1B, 2, and status 7. And so Sanders comes in at the highest ranking, the most critical, which is 1A. It's the highest on the list. Those get preference for transplants. And so now she's placed on that, <clears throat> and we're just waiting. And so part of our waiting is that Jamie and I get interviewed. We, we get interviewed by psychologists and social workers and geneticists. We get interviewed by surgeons, child life specialists, palliative care providers, dietitians, pharmacists, infectious disease doctors, financial counselors, and even pastoral care. I didn't get a break on that, but I still had to sit through that interview, right? And so we <clears throat> go through all those interviews, and, and now you're just playing a waiting game. It's what they call bridge to transplant. And a new detail I learned is that only 50% of pediatric transplant patients actually make it to transplant. They said that's the hardest battle is just getting to transplant. Then I learned another detail that the average wait time is six to nine months for a new heart. And so we're, here we are, we're just in this, in this bridge, right, just trying to wait, just trying to keep her alive and do these things and get her <clears throat> in a sustainable place. And finally we get the call. 
We get a call and says, there's a, there's a donor and there's a heart uh, available. And so for Sanders, that was seven weeks after she was born, five weeks after being on the list. It was miraculous timing. And uh, so we get the call, and what happens then is <clears throat> the doctors would then describe the heart to us, kind of the condition it's in, where it's coming from, all about it. And we as a family have the opportunity to accept that heart or to reject that. And so this one we, told, we chose to accept it. <clears throat> and then what happens is uh, the, the child who is donating their organs, um, they can't just, or they're not just going to donate a heart. There's you know, possibly like eight possible organs that can be donated. And so each one of those has to be spoken for. So there's this process of, well, who gets the kidney? And they go on the list and they call. So maybe there's a child in San Antonio that needs a kidney and a child in Houston that needs a liver and <clears throat> Oklahoma City right, that needs something else. And so all that has to be coordinated. The representatives for each of the childs from all their different hospitals fly to where the donor is. And then once they're all there, they begin harvesting the organs. The heart is the last one to be harvested because it has the shortest amount of time. It has to go from body to body in four hours. And so that's why it's a, a big, big deal <clears throat> that they do that. And uh, so, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. We're doing that, and uh, part of that process is when our doctor for Sanders gets there, uh, when the donor is open, there's a, a visual inspection of the heart. You know, we, we think everything's good, we've accepted it, but this doctor kind of makes the final call, the final exam of it. And so when the doctor looks and says, yep, that's good, we'll take it, they pulled Sanders <clears throat> into surgery. And so uh, another thing about that list, right, if, if you're at the top of the list in the nation, um, but you live in Texas and, and, and there's a heart available in California, you don't get it, right, because of a short amount of time. So <clears throat> doctor says, okay, it's good to go. Another detail I learned now is that Sanders is taken back to surgery. Uh, she's opened up. All her blood is put into a bypass machine. And then actually her old bad heart is taken out while the new heart is in transit. You know, it's flying in. And so you're hoping and praying um, that there's no rain delays, that the ambulance makes it to the hospital. So it's a private jet to Love Field, ambulance over to Children's, right? you got four hours to make this thing happen. The, the heart, which is about the size of a strawberry, uh, is placed in an ice bath, and there's some other kind of liquids and stuff in there. And it's just in a, a, a igloo cooler from Walmart. I mean, literally, it's a multi-million dollar procedure, and there's like, okay, you know, and <clears throat> out with it. So this happens. Uh, the heart gets there. It's then implanted. What they do with the heart, the way they implant that is, or transplant it, is they leave some of the old heart there. So they're not trying to connect the arteries and the veins, but they're just kind of sewing on pieces of the old heart to the new one. And then they put the blood back into her. And, and they hope her heart wakes up. The heart's been through a ton of trauma. It's been in an ice bath for multiple hours. And so the, the heart hopefully starts beating on its own. And uh, then they add some pacing wires, some kind of electric fires just to keep the heart on pace. Once the heart outpaces the pacing wires, they can remove those. And then it's just a process of learning to breathe again, learning to eat again. We're still trying to do that. And then another detail I learned is about the medications needed. And so she is on immunosuppressants, uh, 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. for the rest of her life. And the, the, you know, our immune system, which we're so grateful for, that takes all those little germs and fights them off for us, uh, fights all foreign objects, Sanders has a heart with a different DNA, and it's, it's always going to be a foreign object. So her immune system would attack that heart, and that's what's called rejection. And so what we have to do is we have to give her medications to, to, to knock out and to put her immune system to sleep for the rest of her life. 
And now these medications are very hard on other parts of your body, kidney, liver. So a lot of heart transplant patients wind up needing other transplants of organs because of the harshness of the medications that they have to have to survive. <clears throat> and then I learned another detail in that just because you get a new heart, it's not a complete fix, right? It's not like, oh, new heart, now she's living to 80 or 90. Right now, the average time that a pediatric heart transplant patient lives is about 20 to 25 years. And then you got to start it all over again. And so when you came in the room this morning, like, you knew what a heart transplant was. You kind of knew how it worked and the outcome of it. But now that you know the details, when I show you this picture, there's probably a greater appreciation for that smile, right? And so we give all praise and honor and glory to God. And what I want to do today and the rest of our time left is this. The way I just kind of gave you the details of a heart transplant that would lead you to a greater appreciation is the same thing I want to do with the topic of salvation. It's a word that most of us know, that most of us use. We kind of get the mechanics of it. We know the outcome of it. But my goal and my hope and my prayer is that as we unpack the details of salvation, it would lead you to a greater appreciation. Especially as we enter into the Advent season, celebrating the birth of our Savior. If we know truly what salvation is, that would be great. And so what I want to do today is kind of the topic is how does salvation actually work, right? And I'm going to take an interesting approach to it. I'm going to ask ten different questions about salvation and try to answer those. And hopefully the answers will lead us to a better understanding, a better appreciation. And what I'll say is this right off the top of the bat. I'm not going to get to everything, right? I took a class at Dallas Theological Seminary, a whole semester just on salvation. You know, three hours a week, 16 weeks. We got like 20 minutes left today, okay? So we're not going to get to all of it. People spend their lives on this. But again, the way a cardiologist could tell you a lot more about a heart transplant than I can, I at least hope I can give you some details that would lead to that greater appreciation, when we think about salvation, right, how salvation works, there's a lot of questions out there. There's a lot of confusion on things. And so people ask questions like, is there a magic prayer that you have to say to be saved? Uh, are there certain actions you have to take to be able to be saved? Can you lose your salvation? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? Is salvation doesn't make any difference here and now or is it only for heaven one day? And how do I know if I'm really saved? So how does our salvation work? Ten different questions. Here's question number one. Why do we need to be saved in the first place? The short and simple answer is because of sin. And now there's three types of sin. It's donut, Dr. Pepper, and ice cream. Well, those are mine. Um, But three, three types of sin we see in the Bible, right? The first is what we call imputed sin. The way I like to think about imputed sin is to look at the opposite, amputation, which is taking something off. Imputation is then putting something on. And it says that you and I, we receive the guilt of Adam's sin. It's imputed onto us. We see this in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Therefore, as one trespass, Led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This is imputed sin, the guilt you receive. Another way I like to think of it is uh, if the U.S. goes to war with Canada, we're just like, 
you know, stick them up. We want all your maple syrup. And so we go to war. <clears throat> you may not have chosen to go to war with Canada, but because you're a U.S. citizen, you're just in war with Canada. It's almost kind of like this guilty by association. This is imputed sin. The second type of sin we have is inherited sin. We see this in Psalm 51.5. The NIV reads like this. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. To keep picking on Canadians, if two Canadians have a baby, they have a Canadian. If two Americans have a baby, they have an American. Two Germans have a baby, it's probably going to be an engineer, right? But if two sinners have a child, that child is a sinner. You cannot produce what you're not. And, And so nobody has a perfect child, right? We Sinners have sinful babies. There's imputed sin and inherited sin at the moment of conception. Third type of sin is this. It's personal sin. Anything that lacks conformity to God's character and thought, word, or deed. It's falling short. It's missing the mark. It's rebellion. It's, it's lawfulness. It's unrighteousness. Right? And two types of sins there. There's sins of commission, the things that I do that I'm not supposed to do. And there's sins of omission, the things I don't do that I am supposed to do. And we see that Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious and perfect standard. Now there's a consequence to sin, this imputed, inherited, and personal sin. There's a consequence in Romans 6 that tells us, For the wages of sin is death. And death is a consequence of sin. Now, not just physical death, because you and I, we fall short, we miss the mark a lot, but we don't just explode, right? Not only is there a physical death associated with this, but there is also a spiritual death associated with this. And Ephesians 2 talks about what the spiritual death looks like. In Ephesians 2, it says that we're dead in our sin, which means we're separated from Christ, we're alienated from God, and we have no hope. Consequence of sin is eternal separation from God. God is perfect and righteous and holy and just. And because of our sin, we are not. And God cannot have fellowship with imperfection, so we will exist forever separated from God. His standard is perfection. And you and I are not perfect. And there's no way that we can just be perfect. So that's a problem. If we're separated from God. So we ask the question, number two, what does God do? What does God do? In his grace and his love and his mercy, he made a way for this problem to be reconciled. He made a way that is possible for us, for you and I, to have a right, restored, renewed relationship with God. So how did he do it? Step number one, he comes as a sinless man. And this is why when we get to the Christmas story and we talk about the virgin birth, it's so important. Right? I believe that as God, the Holy Spirit, gave a fertilized egg to Mary. That none of Mary's DNA was used in the process. That way Jesus doesn't have imputed sin or inherited sin. Came as a sinless man. Second thing is he lived a sinless life. He was perfect. He never made a mistake. There's no personal sin when it comes to Jesus. Then he dies a sinner's death. Christ on the cross, God took your sin and my sin, the sin of the whole world, and he imputed it. He applied it onto Jesus Christ as if he had done it on his account. And God poured out his wrath and his punishment 
on Jesus because our sin was applied to him and imputed. He was a substitution for us, stood in our place. And then Jesus defeats sin and death. He raises from the grave. He has power over sin and power over death. Now he has the ability to impute to us, to apply to our life, his righteousness and his perfection. It's a beautiful exchange, a miraculous exchange. And so we ask the question, then how are we saved? How are we saved? Question number three, we're saved by grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. Grace is unmerited favor. It means you don't deserve it. Every single person in the history of mankind besides Jesus Christ deserves to spend eternity apart from God. That is what we deserve. That's what's just and that's what's right. But the fact that God would do anything to save one of us, that's grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's over and above. And the way he does it is remarkable. So we're saved, number one, by grace alone. Number two, we're saved through faith alone. And I want to take that word and I want to table it. We're going to come back and we're going to unpack what that word faith means. But step three is this, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's John 14, 6, it says this, Jesus said to them, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why is it in Christ alone? Because Jesus was the only one capable of living a sinless life. He's the only one capable of bearing the punishment for our sin. He's the only one capable of defeating death. He's the only one capable of imputing his righteousness to us. There's no one else and nothing else that can do that. So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Quick side note on this. We ask the question, how are people in the Old Testament saved? And we know it is not through the law, right? Romans 8, 3 in the New Living Translation says this. The law of Moses was unable to save because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin. God gave the law because he wanted people to know how to live. And he wanted to give them a tool that showed them they need a savior. The law is a diagnostic. It reveals when you break it that you need a savior. Right? It was never meant to and not capable of saving anyone. So how are people in the Old Testament saved? Same way they are today. By grace alone, through faith alone. But rather than in Christ, it's in God. One author writes this. The basis on which God forgives has always been the substitutionary death of Christ. Throughout all existence, God knew and accepted the work of his son as already finished. But faith can only be placed in what God has revealed up to that point in time. We see this about Abraham, right? It said Abraham had faith and it was counted to him. As righteousness, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Of the Old Testament, it was in God, not Christ, because he hadn't come yet. So we ask the question number four, 
from what are we saved? So we know why we need it, we know how, but, but what are we saved from? Number one, we're saved from the past penalty of our sin. Romans 8.1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I don't have to face the wrath and the punishment and the penalty for our sin because in Christ he took it. That's good news. That's good news that we have to, we're saved from that. The second thing we're saved from is this. We're saved from the present power of sin today. It's an interesting concept, but you and I have to realize we are slaves our entire life. Either you're a slave to God or you're a slave to sin. We see this in Romans 6. It says, for sin will have no dominion over you. That's power and control. It's your master. Since you are not under the law but under grace, having been set free from sin, you've now become slaves of righteousness. The third thing that we are saved from is the future presence of sin. Man, there is coming a day where the, the possibility of contrary choice to God will be taken away. Well, he will right every wrong. He'll put it back to rights like he had in the garden. We see this in Revelation. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Man, there's coming a day when nobody needs a heart transplant. When there's no more cancer. When there's no more murder, or rape, or thievery. There's no more war. There's no more politics. There's no more Facebook. And I'm hoping no more salad. I hope he just does away with that, right? There's coming a day. When all the wrong things will be made right. And this is what you and I, we long for. Now, this week I had lunch. I sat across the table from another pastor. And he told me about something that happened to his family. Absolutely horrendous. I've had nightmares that's been haunting me. And I didn't even live through it. I just heard about it. If I told it to you, you would cringe. And as I'm driving around this week, just can't get those images and those words out of my mind. What I'm seeing is it creates a longing. A longing for all that to be done away with. A longing for everything to be made right. And that is what salvation in Christ does. It saves us from the future presence of sin. So for what are we saved? Right? Is salvation just for later, by and by, when we die? Or does salvation have impact and implications right now? Yes, it does. And here's what the Bible said. You're saved to do good works. Maybe that's in our community. You're saved to be an ambassador of God. And maybe that's in your work this week. You are saved to carry out the ministry of reconciliation. Maybe that's in your family over the holiday season. You are saved to present your body as a living sacrifice. You are saved to do everything to the glory of God, even our weekend hobbies. We're saved to show God's love to every single person we interact. Right? Salvation isn't just for one day. It matters here and now today. And question number six, what happens after salvation? So I'm saved, right? The next step is this. It's sanctification. It's becoming more like Christ. It's the better in our mission statement. Loving God with all that we are while making more, that's salvation, and better, that's sanctification, followers of Christ. 
It's this idea that we want to be better husbands and wives and, and better neighbors and better coworkers and better volunteers and better community members. We want to become more like Christ. That's what happens after salvation. Then the question number seven, how long does salvation last? It lasts forever. It's forever. In John 10, we see this, 27 and 29. It says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There is eternal security for the believer. Listen to me. If there's nothing you do to earn salvation, there's nothing you do to lose salvation. Salvation is not predicated on what you do for Christ. It is predicated on what Christ has done for you. Right? So there is security in that. Question number eight, probably the hardest one, is what happens to those who do not receive salvation? 2 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us, they, speaking of those who do not receive salvation, will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. And this is why this is such an important topic. Because everybody spends eternity somewhere. The person you're sitting beside, the people who are going to gather in your home for Christmas, your next door neighbors and co-workers and the people you run into at the grocery store, everybody spends eternity somewhere. And without receiving imputed perfection and righteousness of Christ, they'll spend eternity apart from the Lord. Quick side tangent, what happens to those who cannot believe for themselves? And here's what I'll say on this. A lot of different opinions out there, a lot more than I can cover, but I just want to lay my cards on the table and say, this is my stance. And I really don't have a scripture to go to and to stand on, it, right? But what about those who can't believe for themselves? Do they get a free pass? No, God can't give free passes. If he gives free passes, he's not God. From the moment of conception, there is imputed sin and inherited sin. You live a little bit, and you've got personal sin. So what does God do in that case for those who can't believe for themselves? Here's what I think. I think God imputes and applies the righteousness of Christ to those who can't believe for themselves. So heaven forbid, you know, a child, young child passes away. This is what I would believe. That God says, because you couldn't believe, I'll apply the righteousness of Christ to you. The finished work of Christ on the cross is yours. I'll impute that. Again, there's people who disagree with me on that. There's different thoughts of it. But that's what I'll stand on. I really don't have a ton of scripture to back it up. It's just the nature and the character of God that leads me to that. Okay. Question number nine. What is not essential for salvation? We are not saved by grace through right living. No sort of moral conformity can ever save you. We are not saved by grace through charitable giving. No matter how much you give and take care of others, it's not going to save you. We're not saved by grace through all knowledge or correct knowledge. There are people who will be in heaven who have wrong knowledge, right, on certain topics. It's not essential. There will be people in heaven who are old earth and new earth proponents, right? On certain topics, having the correct knowledge is not essential, we're not a saved by grace through a cleaned up life. Somebody needs to hear this. You don't have to get your act together to come to Jesus. That's why he came. Because none of us have our act together. 
And so he died in our place, right? You don't have to clean your life up to come to him. You are not saved by grace through baptism. Baptism, what we do over here, it's beautiful, it's symbolic, it's representative of dying to self and a new creation in Christ, right? It is not salvific. But what about Acts chapter 2, verse 38? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Really sounds like he's saying be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so you would think, oh, man, maybe we have to be baptized. No, you don't, right? That's works-based. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, not baptism. The way that verse, we understand it, it's like I would come to you and I would say, hey, you need to take Tylenol for your headache. You wouldn't think, oh, I need to take Tylenol so I can have a headache, right? You would think, I need to take Tylenol because I have a headache. That's what he's saying here. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized because you have been forgiven of your sins, because you've received salvation, go forward in baptism. What is not essential for salvation? A certain set of words, good works, church attendance, volunteering. No matter how many sermons you hear in this building, no matter how much scripture you read or how much time you spend paying, no matter how many verses you memorize or how much you volunteer, how much you give, none of it saves you. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So what is essential? Last question, number 10. What is essential for salvation? It's faith. Let's talk about that, right? That word faith, pistis or pistuo in the Greek. It, to me, it's comprised of three things, what I kind of call the, the three-legged stool of salvation. If one of the legs of the stool is missing, it doesn't work. It doesn't stand up. It doesn't hold. Leg number one in the stool of salvation is this. It's knowledge of Jesus. Without a knowledge of Jesus, you cannot be saved. And that's why it's so important for you and I to go and support fund missionaries and to tell our neighbors and coworkers, right? Because the knowledge of. But here's the deal. Knowledge of Jesus alone is insufficient for salvation. You cannot be saved just on knowledge alone, right? You have to have a knowledge alone. Second leg of the stool is belief that. I believe that Jesus lived. I believe that he was sinless. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose from the grave. But here's the deal. Even belief that Jesus did those things is not sufficient for salvation. Even the demons believe he's the son of God and they're not saved. There's a third leg of the school stool that is essential and must be required. Not only is it knowledge of and belief that, but it's trust in. It's putting your trust in. In Jesus, as your sin bearer, as your Savior alone. It's like I know the chair's there. I believe the chair can hold me, but until I sit in it, right, until you receive Jesus and you have that righteousness imputed to your life, there is no salvation. And so that's it's like a Acts 4.12 mindset, saying that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Bonus question. I know you always love those on the test, right? One more question. What about your salvation? What about yours? See, spiritually speaking, the truth of the matter is, every single person in here, you're no different than my daughter. You were born with a bad heart. And unless you receive a new one, you will die. And have that eternal separation. Spiritually speaking, we all have bad hearts. They can't be fixed. They can't be repaired. They're broken beyond repair. And just like my daughter, you do nothing to earn it. 
and you do nothing to, to deserve it. You just simply receive. So have you done that? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus alone as your Savior? If you have not today, I, I beg you, I urge you, I beseech you, I implore you, whatever words I could use that you would not leave this building without making that decision. I mean, some of us, we have knowledge of and we believe that Jesus did these certain things, but some of you today, you realize, man, I will be eternally separated from God for my sin. And that salvation is in Christ alone. He alone has the power to save. He alone has the righteousness he can impute to me. And I'm not perfect and I can't do it, so I am trusting in Jesus alone as Savior. If you want to do that today, man, there's cards in your seat back pockets. You can just check a box, write it on the notes. We will follow up with you. We will celebrate with you. We want to see you be baptized one day as a symbol of what Christ has done and given you a new heart, right? You can come forward at the end and tell a prayer partner. You can find a pastor and tell them, man, I'm ready to receive the free gift of salvation. You don't even have to tell us. You can do it right now. Say, God, forgive me of my sins. I accept that. I receive that. I put my trust in you alone as Savior. So the way we're going to close the service today is we're going to take communion together. And I can't think of a better way on a message of salvation than to take communion. Man, because when we hold those elements, for those of us who are saved, we've put our faith and trust in Jesus. We look at the bread and it symbolizes his body that was given for us. We look at the cup and we see his blood that was shed and we know that that should have been us, but he was a substitute. He took our punishment. He took our sin, right? And so we take and and we know these details and that leads us to a greater appreciation. But if you haven't received salvation, as you let the elements pass by, may you ponder and yearn and desire for that. You know, and people say Christianity is so narrow. It's not. There's one front door, but Whosoever will may come. All you have to do is put your trust in Christ Jesus today. And so at this time, we'll receive communion.